When I look into the four Gospels, it never ceases to stun me how the Messiah is rejected by the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament. I wonder if that stuns you. That of all the people that are rejecting Jesus, who are conspiring against Him, eager to see Him die, these are people who would have been found in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, leading readings and giving interpretations and scribes, teaching and even copying texts. Think about how stunning it is that Jesus' religious contemporaries came to despise Him. In the Old Testament, the righteous servants and prophets, those who came with the Word of God, were themselves despised also. It wasn't something that happened in Jesus' day, and Jesus said, well, this is the first time this kind of thing has happened. Normally, it's always gone well when God has sent a person, sent a word, sent a figure with a word from God. And here, the very word of God, the word has become flesh, and now culminating a long line of righteous vessels and instruments, Jesus is now the one who, after all those former days and after all those former prophets, Jesus is God among sinners, and yet... And yet there is something very, very deja vu like with the, with the treatment of Jesus if we know the Old Testament. This has happened before. People had rejected the words of God and the prophets of God. Jesus says to his contemporaries the following thing. Luke 10, beginning in verse 10, he tells his disciples, whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. He told his disciples, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for that town. Which is to say, there are cities and judgments in the Old Testament that involve judgments of God locally, historically, temporal judgments. And they were escalating toward the coming of Christ where to reject Christ, to oppose and unite against Him is a kind of outrageous transgression that means that on that day of judgment, that town rejecting Christ will have it worse than Sodom, that Old Testament town of Genesis 18 and 19. He says to his contemporaries in Luke 10, 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus is picturing these Old Testament cities who were worthy of judgment and who had prophetic oracles and warnings against them. And Jesus says, but now that I have arrived, to reject me is not like rejecting Isaiah or Jeremiah or ignoring Ezekiel or calling false prophets against the ministry of Daniel. To reject Jesus is altogether unique. He is in a category beyond the previous ones. The generation of Jesus had leaders among the religious elite who opposed him, rejected him, conspired against him. And you could consider the following question. What kind of outpouring of judgment or consequence should they expect? In Luke 21, Jesus pronounces that the stones of this beautiful temple are going to be brought down. 
And the last time in Israel's history, they had a temple that was taken down and ruined. It was by a foreign enemy under God's judgment. So what would it mean for Jesus to say this temple, these beautiful stones are going to be brought down, not one stone left upon another? For them, knowing the Old Testament prophetic text, this is a judgment pronouncement. That's the kind of thing the prophet said God was going to do in his land to the Israelite people because of their unfaithfulness. And we have to consider the timing of this judgment pronouncement. What's been happening in Jesus' ministry to this point? Well, the people who would be found self-righteously in the temple, the people who would be the blind leading the blind into spiritual waywardness, they have been opposing the Messiah who is the light of the world and the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus' words in Luke 21 are about judgment because not only has there been sin and unfaithfulness among the religious leaders of the day, Jesus has also come to fulfill the temple. Unlike in the Old Testament period when it was torn down and rebuilt, Jesus has come to bring the temple to its proper conclusion. And when Jesus comes to fulfill the temple, he comes in a day where the religious elite and the socialites of the Jewish um, leaders are corrupt, spiritually vacuous. So Luke 21 has grim words. There's nothing lighthearted and deeply encouraging with regard to Luke 21's message in the generation of Jesus' disciples. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be wars and tumult. All of these things leading up to the fall of judgment in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. Charles Spurgeon is correct. Spurgeon says, we must see the siege of the temple and the destruction of it as being a kind of rehearsal for what is yet to be. Spurgeon knew that just because Luke 21 is addressing something that happened in the first century Roman Empire, we don't say, well, then there's nothing to learn here. We don't treat Old Testament texts that way, or we shouldn't. We should recognize that Jeremiah and Isaiah, they had messages for their contemporaries, things that were fulfilled in those days. Those texts are not therefore irrelevant, not at all. Instead, we look and say, what do we learn of God, of those contemporaries, what had brought this on, and what abiding truths remain? And the destruction of the temple, Spurgeon says, is a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be. This means that the destruction of Sodom, or judgments against Tyre, or judgments against Jerusalem, they're all earthly foreshadowings of that day when the wicked will stand before God, and the righteous will be vindicated in His name. The destruction of the temple then, two ideas here, a sign of divine judgment and messianic fulfillment. The Messiah is the new temple. He's the new temple. Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back up. Jesus depicted what he was going to do in light of the Old Testament temple institution. The temple was a place of sacrifice. People were drawing near to God. And Jesus has come to be the way, the truth, and the life. The new and full temple for sinners. Friends, when we are in Christ Jesus, we are brought near to God because of the temple nature of who Jesus is. He is the sacrificed and high priest for us. He is the way of access to God because He has come to make known God as God to us. 
He's not just like an Old Testament prophet. He's more. He's not just like an Old Testament teacher. He's more. He's not just like an Old Testament priest. He's more. He's not just like an Old Testament king. He's more. We say of Christ that He's prophet and priest and king and teacher and wisdom and sacrifice and temple. He's all of these things. The person of Jesus is the compelling reality of the gospel. When the disciples needed to hear the words of Jesus, even if what the words of Jesus would mean for their generation would be unfolding distress and horrors leading up to a destruction of something that was so sacred as a facility, such an important building with beautiful stones. And Jesus said, it's so beautiful, isn't it? They're all coming down. They're all coming down. What's merely compelling and interesting outwardly might not be any indication of what really is within And the temple was coming down. Its days had been numbered. There's an assault on Jerusalem described in verses 20 through 24. He continues the language of this discourse from uh, our passage last week, which was from verses 5 through 19. Jesus has been giving them indications that leading up to this temple's destruction will be all manner of tension and hostility and warfare. And it will be grievous and sorrowful and we know from historians like Josephus and others in the first century it was a grievous set of years most immediately leading up to 70 AD especially from around 66 to 70 AD Jesus depicts here in verse 20 the onslaught of Jerusalem that all of those previous horrors were leading up to in verse 20 here it here it is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that its desolation has come near. Now there are parts that in the Olivet Discourse, which is the teaching on the Mount of Olives, um, right outside the temple to the east where Jesus is teaching here. This Olivet Discourse is not only in Luke. It's in Matthew. It's in Mark. And some, um, some of uh, these, these discourses will all speak of the same, with the same wording and about the same reality to show that um, not only is Jesus teaching this on the east of the Mount of Olives, but Matthew and Mark and Luke are wanting them to know what is coming. And some, like in Luke's gospel here, some verses give very specific, um, very specific things to imagine, like Jerusalem surrounded by armies and its desolation has come near. There is a, pa- there is a verse, though, a claim that I'm using as an interpreter of Luke 21. And I need to jump forward for a moment to show you what I'm talking about. It's in verse 32. Luke 21, 32, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all or all these things has taken place. My guiding interpretation in light of that, pass, in light of that verse is that the generation of Jesus' disciples is in view. Now sometimes the Olivet Discourse can give interpreters um, interpretive fits. because, uh, And I don't mean that in a totally negative way. I just mean it's not the easiest of Jesus' teachings to dissect and to think through, to interpret and apply. Sometimes language about Jerusalem being surrounded and this generation that's going to pass away, but not until all these things has taken place. Sometimes that language is lifted out of a first century setting. And it's put way forward in the future, not even to our day, but in in days future from us. And someone might say, these are 
end times predictions here about what's happening in the final days up to the coming of Christ when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies and a generation would be the generation of of, uh, those who will witness the coming of Christ. I don't think that's what this passage is referring to. And there are several clues along the way. But I want to point to the fact that Jesus is asked by the disciples when these things will be in verse 7. And what he's referred to is the days when not one stone will be left on another. He's answering their question, which was very specific about a particular temple. And we know historically this was fulfilled in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. I think a guiding instinct on this passage in Luke 21, even though there are difficulties here, um, I don't think any of you is without difficulty on Luke 21 and the Olivet Discourse at large, but the guiding principle for me is looking at this within a first century setting leading up to 70 AD. And I'm going to try to argue compellingly for that. In verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Mark and Matthew include not only the language desolation, they use the language abomination of desolation. Abomination of desolation. I think they mean exactly what Luke 21.20 means in the words of Jesus. The desolation has come. It is now at hand. I want to pay attention as a reader to uh, to the use of near language in verse 20. Because near language, which means at hand, it has arrived, it has drawn near. This kind of language is used over and over again in the remainder of our passage. So I'm just going to draw our attention to this. And then I think as we read, we'll see that stand out. Jesus is talking about things that will be at hand for his disciples. And he says, you will know that the desolation has come near. What does he mean by desolation? He means the desolation of the temple. To bring down the temple into ruins, not one stone left upon another, that is to speak of the house as desolate. In fact, in Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' words using desolate lead right into the Olivet Discourse. At the end of Matthew 23, he says to the Pharisees, your house is left to you desolate. And then in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse is given. The house that will be brought into desolation is the temple in Jerusalem. And he has Jerusalem in view. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. It will be surrounded. It will be besieged in verse 20. I think all of this, the desolation of the temple, the surrounding by by forces, all of this is fulfilled in 70 AD. Jeremiah language is probably in the background here. The prophets will often have a language that is woven in to how Jesus speaks and how the apostles write. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 22 and elsewhere, there is language about Jerusalem facing desolation by the Babylonian armies. In other words, when the armies come against the city, not only is Jerusalem under threat, it houses the temple. In other words, the house of God is in this city. To come against the city is to bring threat against God's holy temple. Desolation and surrounding of Jerusalem, I think we should imagine that as leading up to 70 AD. Historically, here's how this worked out. Emperor Vespasian was declared emperor in 69 AD of the Roman Empire. And he had a son named Titus, who was the leader of the army that besieged and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. So General Titus, under his father Vespasian's decree and emperorship, 
trampled the city. They were the Gentiles that trampled Jerusalem and the temple. They brought it to its point of desolation. They were the, they were the agents of divine judgment against the city. In verse 21, another reason I think we are not dealing with an end time final coming of Christ here is because of the instructions of verses 21 and following. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the, not in, let not those, there it is, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Now listen, let's think for a moment about the instructions that are given. If this is the second coming of Christ that brings about this desolation in the city, what good will it do anybody to flee to mountains? In verse 21, what good will it do for those who remain out of the country not to enter Jerusalem? This is not the end of all things that Jesus is talking about. It's the end of the temple. It's a local judgment. And let's just imagine that geographically we learn of political skirmishes somewhere and we are, we are outside our country, we are traveling internationally, and all of a sudden we get these alerts. This particular city is, being, is under siege. You're going to think to yourself, well, given that local and particular danger, I'm not going to go in there. And anybody who was in there who knew what was coming, hopefully they had a chance to get out before things got really bad really quickly. In light of that illustration, read verse 21 again. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's Judea referred to? It's a region in the southern promised land where Jerusalem is. So let those who are in Judea get out of that place. Why? Because there's a particular judgment in history that will be inflicted by foreign adversaries under a divine decree in that place. Let those who are inside the city get out. Let, those, let not those who are out in the country enter it. No one's going to think, hey, I wonder if today is a good day to go into Jerusalem. Not from around 66 to 70 AD. Not with the increasing, escalating difficulty unfolding against that place. That would be a terrible place to visit in that, in that case. For in verse 22, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And in the Old Testament... Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 promise that breaking of the Lord's covenant and violation of his law, living unrepentantly and disobediently in the land, it will lead to God pouring out judgment. And I think what Jesus is saying is, like an Old Testament prophet, don't you know that the word of God has already told you what is coming? Upon this city, the rejection of Jesus' signs and kingdom message, a persecution of Jesus himself, he will be crucified just days from teaching this Olivet Discourse, these people should expect a divine judgment for the law of God in the Old Testament is true. So he says these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. What you're witnessing is the condemnation and judgment of the Lord. Hosea 9 verse 7 supplies language like this. God would bring wrath against the people in the land. Days of vengeance are days of wrath. In Hosea 9.7, days of punishment have come, the prophet says. Days of recompense or days of vengeance have come. Israel shall know it. It's like Jesus is Hosea to them. Jesus is saying days of punishment are coming. Days of recompense or days of vengeance are on the way and Israel shall know it. That's what's on the way. Notice how particular the judgment must be from verse 23 to make sense. 
Verse 23 says, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath upon this people. You could simply translate earth, the word land. There will be great distress upon the land. It still is about a particular judgment in a spot. But in verse 23, why would it be more difficult for pregnant and nursing people if this is the second coming of Christ? The reason it's difficult for pregnant and nursing people in this local judgment is because if they're in Jerusalem, they're not going to be able to travel as swiftly and perhaps even as far if they are pregnant. If they're nursing infants, then they're carrying a small child along the way. Traveling with small children is not easy. I know this. All right. And so we can think about how in Jerusalem, if they've got nursing infants, if there are pregnant mothers and judgment on the city is coming, then it will be more difficult for them. Friends, these are these are clues within the text that this is a historical judgment in a particular place, and people outside that region shouldn't go there. People inside that region should flee, and among the most difficult of those fleeing, it will be pregnant women and nursing mothers. In verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I think he's speaking here of a specific window of time, a judgment unfolding unto 70 AD. And these are the times of the Gentiles and the Romans are the Gentiles trampling. And we also know, according to Josephus and other historians, that Jews were led astray, led in exile. I should say astray from the city and wayward from the city. Uh, In fact, Josephus claims that many Jews were led captive And sent as slaves to different provinces, including to serve in Egyptian mines. Josephus speculates that more than 90,000 Jews had that happen to them. Some have wondered if the number of deaths reported by Josephus are a bit exaggerated. But even if they're not exaggerated, they're still stunning. Even if you dial it back a bit, Josephus tallies the death of Jews killed by the Romans from 66 to 70 AD as more than one million that's in, that is a staggering number. And even if Josephus is aiming high, that is not small losses we're thinking about. We're thinking about devastating death in the land. The image of trampling is what's, uh, what's imposed and uh, perpetrated by the Romans. And in verse 24, falling by the edge of the sword is a picture of judgment. That's imagery from the prophets, from Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's as if the sword of the Lord was coming down and the sword of the Lord was the sword of Rome. Jerusalem trampled underfoot until the times of Gentiles are fulfilled. So what I've been saying to you to this point is that up through verse 24, I think we have good reason to see a particular historical and first century context. Things get a lot dicier starting in verse 25. Now in verse 25 through 27, we see, well really through verse 28, verses 25 to 28 give us disturbing imagery that's connected to this earthly judgment. What are we to make of this? It says, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming in the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now verses 25 through 28 here, are among the more controversial verses in this passage. All believers hold to the second coming of Christ. 
Believing that in the future, the Lord Jesus will return in power and glory. He will raise the dead. He will judge the wicked. What, what scholars and commentators disagree on is whether verses 25 through 28 are talking about that day. Or are they talking about something much earlier? And the reason there is some debate is because of the imagery that's used. So I want you to think with me about verses 25 and 26 in light of some prophets. Verse 25 gives us some very disturbing shaking that is happening, right? Sun and moon and stars have signs. There is roaring of sea and waves. In verse 26, it ends with saying the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, one way to take this that many interpreters throughout history have taken it is that this means literally you will be able to look up and you will see heavenly things happening and moving around. Things in the heavens shifting. Moon, stars, uh, sun, things are happening that are spatial, astronomical, and disturbing. Another way to say this is that Jesus' words are like Old Testament prophets that use this language, but it's not about the end of the world. Old Testament prophets use this language... And it's not about the end of the world when they use it. And I want to show you something from Isaiah 13 as an example. There are many places you could look. Isaiah 13 is a good place. Isaiah 13 tells us there's going to be a judgment on a place called Babylon. Babylon was going to face God's wrath. And that was fulfilled by the Persian army in 539 BC. Babylon was judged. The judgment of Babylon was prophesied. In Isaiah 13... Notice how the coming day of God's judgment on this city is described. It says in Isaiah 13, verse 6, for example, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all human hands, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I'll punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Now, if you look at the top of chapter 13, 1, what is this oracle from Isaiah about? Isaiah 13.1, the oracle concerning the end of the world as we know it. No, that's not what chapter 13.1 says. Carefully, the oracle concerning Babylon. Babylon's judgment, a particular place and at a particular time. The prophets are engaging in what's called apocalyptic speech. Images and metaphors and symbols that are meant to disturb you when you hear about them. But not because in the telling of those images it would happen so literally that way. Political or social judgments on earth are often given as counterparts to heavenly upheaval in some way. The error that we might make as interpreters is to say anytime we hear of suns and moons and signs in the heavens, that that must mean the end of the world. It's not that way in the prophets. It's not necessarily that way in the Olivet Discourse. In other words... If Jesus has been foretelling a judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans, and he says there will be suns and moon and stars, 
uh, there are signs in sun and moon and stars. And in verse 25, roaring of sea and waves. In verse 26, the powers of the heavens being shaken. He's saying the kinds of things the prophets said when there was an earthly judgment God would apply to a particular place and for a particular reason. So the way I'm reading this so far is that verses 25 and 26 are like that. Now, interpreters disagree on this because this deals with language in the prophets or language like in the book of Revelation, which is just notoriously difficult. It's not like some clear passages in Ephesians or reading narratives in the book of Acts or reading things from 1 Kings. You're dealing with images and symbols and metaphors and heavenly pictures. And the the need for the reader is to say, all right, how can I do this? But to adopt some interpretive humility to recognize not only could we be wrong in our reading of it, others certainly have disagreed on how best to understand it. Uh, one of the things that we've, did, we, that we've done in uh, previous years here is I taught through the whole book of Revelation. And, um, and if I were to go through the book of Revelation again, I would probably have different understandings of certain verses and chapters because of the nature of being a Bible interpreter reading a difficult book. And I would imagine that there are things that you have thought over the years with metaphors and symbols in Scripture or certain difficult texts that's not always been the position you hold right now. Things have changed in your mind. You might, in fact, read the Olivet Discourse and think verses 25 and following are just definitely and so clearly about the coming of Christ. You should know, though, that that's not a universally held view among interpreters. It's a difficult text. And the reason it's a difficult text is because this imagery is used for, only earth, for earthly judgments in the Old Testament prophets. And it's not about the end of the world in Isaiah 13 and some of those other places. And then another reason someone might say this is the coming of Christ has to do with verse 27. This is probably the strongest argument that this might be the second coming of Christ we're reading about in Luke 21. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And some might look at this and say, well, this is open and shut, isn't it? The Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. If someone's only looking at a first century context, what would their response be? The response is... Jesus will come again, his second coming, but not every reference to Jesus coming in judgment is the coming at the end of all things. In other words, verse 27 is also tying to the Old Testament. So here's a different way to read this. In verse 27, the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory is about Daniel 7. And it's about verses 13 and 14 when the prophet Daniel sees the Son of Man coming on the cloud to the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel 7, that is not a descent from heaven to earth. In Daniel 7, it is heavenly enthronement. It's heavenly enthronement. The Son of Man comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days and it is a picture of the heavens. It is a picture of the dwelling place of God. Daniel's vision is clearly that because it starts on earth at the beginning of Daniel 7 and then shifts to the heavenly throne room. And the heavenly throne room is the place of the coming. Now, this is different from perhaps our second coming ideas when we look at other texts. We think of, all right, when Jesus comes again, his return will be a descent. Is that what verse 27 means? Not necessarily here. This may mean a first century recognition or a reality of what is true in Daniel 7 being fulfilled by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. I told you these verses can have some challenges. 
In verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What could that mean? Well, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 was about the Son of Man ruling and being enthroned as king. And I think the Gospels are expecting that enthronement to be at the ascension of Christ when he is Lord of heaven and earth with all power and glory and authority. Another way to understand this is in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew talks about this destruction on Jerusalem. And in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and powers of the heavens be shaken. Matthew is talking about the same days Luke 21 says, and then he says, and immediately after all of that tumult and all of that upheaval, immediately after that, this is going to happen. Luke 21 and Matthew 24 are speaking in synchronous fashion. Also, in Matthew 26, Jesus is interrogated by the high priest. And here's what Jesus tells the high priest in Matthew 26. He says in Matthew 26, Are you the Christ? Jesus said, You have said so. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He said to the high priest, You will see that. You see in the Gospels, seeing is not always a physical thing. Rather, the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem, the judgment that's coming on the city and the temple, this will demonstrate that Jesus' claims were true. That he is king. That he is Lord. And that his word of judgment is accomplished. And the judgment of Jerusalem means those who cast false verdicts against Jesus, they were wrong. And the conspiracies by the Pharisees and the other religious leaders were in vain. In other words, coming against Jesus, they thought would do away with him. Instead, his prophesied judgment and its eventual fulfillment demonstrates the truthfulness of his claims and that he is the king he claimed with the clouds in power and glory with the ancient of days at the right hand of the father ruling heaven and earth. Amen. I think Luke 21, 27 is about that. And that the kingship of Christ, at his future return, will be made clear in all the world. And that the wicked will face judgment and the righteous will be delivered. So I think even if verse 27 has a first century reference, it doesn't doesn't weaken the glory of all of what this text foreshadows. Including the powering great glory of Christ at his return. At the end of verse 28 it says... In verse 28, it says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, this drawing near language is something, again, I want to point out to you in verse 28. And then, we'll be, be, then we will be out of the weeds, the most difficult part of the Olivet Discourse. Because I can feel the difficulty of the passages even as I'm trying to work through it in front of you. In verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. What's he want his disciples to do? Well, these days are going to lead to a judgment that Christ has prophesied. 
And this generation of the disciples, they're going to face great sufferings and tumult, but he doesn't want them to withdraw, put their head in the sand, and ignore what's happening. He says, straighten up and raise your heads, which is this posture of anticipation and, dare I say, hope. Raise your heads. They might think to themselves, perhaps from an earthly perspective, and if these are the things that are coming, if great challenges and sufferings are on the way, we're just going to hang our heads in frustration. The different posture is straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, the things that are drawing near are throughout chapter 21. For, in, for instance, chapter 21, 8, false messiahs are going to come, Jesus says, in your days. And they're going to say the time is near or the time is at hand. In chapter 21, 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that the desolation has come near. In chapter 21, 28, your redemption is drawing near. In chapter 21, 30, see for yourselves that summer is already near. Verse 31, when you see these things taking place, know that the kingdom of God is near. This language doesn't have to mean in the future and not arriving. It can be near as in the sense of at hand. Look around you. And I would simply pull you back to the beginning of the Gospels when Jesus, and before that, John the Baptist, they're preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. It's not a sense of when Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God, it's near, it's not present. The kingdom of God is near in the sense that it once was anticipated and its dawning day has come. Nearness is about arrival or at-handedness. He is saying here in verse 28... Others are coming against you in judgment. People have conspired against me, the anointed one of God. But your redemption is at hand. Your deliverance. What the wicked face is judgment. That's not what you face in me. You follow me and what you will experience is redemption. In fact, redemption language is rooted in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the pinnacle event in the Old Testament of redeeming work. And what was happening? Well, the Israelites were occupied and oppressed uh, and overcome by, in the land of the Egyptians here, Pharaoh, all of his cohorts. And God intervening with an act of redemption was bringing judgment on his enemies. Well, the disciples here are in a generation of Jesus where his enemies are many. Jewish enemies, Gentile opponents, and ultimately the disciples are going to face kings and governors and all manner of religious leaders and political figures. And Jesus says, what's coming for you is redemption, deliverance, exodus, not for my enemies. They will face judgment. I think this is why he tells them to straighten up and raise your heads. If he had nothing hopeful to tell them, if in the end the wicked would prevail, if in the end the people of God would be defeated by the gates of hell, it would make no sense for him to say, straighten up and raise your heads. I think he's saying even in the first century, be hopeful, endure, persevere. Yours is redemption, not divine judgment. Your redemption is at hand. In verses 29 through 33, we end with a parable. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. He's wanting to point to this fig tree in light of these other trees because the fig tree 
in particular, would lose its leaves in winter. And one, it was one of the first of the trees to start budding in the spring. And when the fig tree began to show its new signs of life, it was the sign that summer was at hand. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is near. Now, it's hard to see summer. What he's saying is you see summer by seeing the signs. You see summer by seeing the indications of what is true, of what is now gloriously the case. There will be plenty of people in Jesus's generation who refuse to acknowledge him as king. Jesus says, listen, disciples, there is further confirmation of my word and ministry on the way. The temple is going to be brought down, not one stone left on another. I will be enthroned in power and glory with the ancient of days. I will be ruling over all heaven and earth. Your redemption is what is at hand. Their judgment it is, is what is at hand. You should endure. You should lift your heads. You should persevere. You should straighten up. Because the Christ is indeed the king. On that day it will be clear to you the kingdom is at hand. Christ is building his church. Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. And the promised anointed one from the Old Testament. In verse 31, when you see all these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is at hand. If Jesus is telling that to his disciples, I think the way to understand this is ever since Jesus's ministry, the kingdom of God has been at hand. And that what Christ has inaugurated, he will bring to its consummation and fulfillment at his second coming. I just think that's different from what he's arguing here in verse 20 and chapter 21. He says in verse 32, and this is such a decisive verse for me as an interpreter. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of this has taken place. I'm taking that and looking backward now. Okay, I'm taking that and looking backward now. This generation will not pass away until these things take place. Say, which generation? Well, remember, Matthew and Mark talk about this same idea. Matthew talks about this generation in Matthew 24. And Mark talks about this generation in Mark 13. Matthew, in fact, uses generation language a lot. Let's see what he might mean. He says in Matthew 24, 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But in Matthew 23, 36, he says to the Pharisees, a judgment was coming on this generation. In Matthew 6, 4, he called them an evil and adulterous generation. Matthew 16, 4, sorry. An evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. He calls them that same thing in Matthew 12, 39. They're a particular generation, a sign-seeking generation. And he says, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Matthew 12, 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Jesus is speaking judgment against the contemporaries who have seen his signs, heard his teachings, beheld his authority and refused to follow him. He says, I'm not just like Isaiah. It's not like you're just ignoring Jeremiah. It's not like you're just neglecting what Ezekiel warned about. You're rejecting the coming Christ, the one who will be with the clouds of heaven, the one who will have all power and glory. To reject him is not only no safe thing, it is to say the days of Sodom would have responded and Tyre and Sidon would have repented, but you are in an escalated situation. It it is worse for you 
than before. In each of those cases where Matthew uses generation language, he means the people around Jesus' day. So when Luke, in parallel fashion, says the same thing in Luke 21, I'm wanting to read that in synchronous interpretation and say Luke 21 is thinking about the same thing. And therefore, all the things prior to Luke 21, 32 must be fulfilled. Now, how certain can we be that Jesus' words were going to be fulfilled? He says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's quite a claim. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I don't think any of us have ever ended a conversation with that kind of claim. No matter how thoughtful and, and confident we were that what we had planned was going to happen. Heaven and earth are going to pass away before my plans. You know, No, we, don't, we recognize how vulnerable our plans are. How limited our view is to the present and the future. Jesus says something that is divine. Jesus speaks as only God could speak. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says, I've spoken words of judgment. Claims about what would be true for me, what my disciples are going to face with vindication after suffering, and then the judgment upon the wicked. How certain, my disciples, can you be of this? Creation would come undone before these words failed. That's what he's saying. Heaven and earth will pass away before my words come untrue. This is a, this is a statement about the certainty of God's promises. Jesus' promises are indestructible. This is great encouragement for our hearts here. Jesus' promises are indestructible. Every person who has ever lived would fail you before Christ ever would. All creation would come undone. And the suns and moons and stars would actually come from the sky being rent apart before Jesus' words would ever be untrue. One writer puts it this way, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, he can't sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? Jesus' promises are indestructible, which means when he says, if you come to me, you will not hunger and thirst again. I have bread for your heart and living water for your soul. That's an indestructible promise. When he says to those walking in darkness, I am the light of the world. The one who walks with me will never walk in the darkness again. That's an indestructible promise. But listen, friends, Luke 21, full of indestructible promises. They were going to happen as Christ said they would and when he said they would. And friends, listen, a day of judgment is coming upon the world. Matthew's gospel gives us a lengthier sermon preached This discourse on the Mount of Olives. And it is promising resurrection from the dead. It is promising judgment upon the wicked. It is promising a gathering of the nations before the glorious and enthroned Christ. And eternal states that will be established. And all of those are indestructible promises. You can look at the fulfillment of things in the first century Roman Empire and say, if Jesus prophesied that and it happened, he said other things as well. They are as indestructible as the earlier things. Christ will return to make all things new. It's an indestructible promise. He says to his disciples, I will be with you. I will never leave you and forsake you. It's an indestructible promise. 
Every earthly judgment foreshadows the final one. And every earthly deliverance foreshadows the final one. And the coming of the Lord is our hope. And so we can be exhorted likewise. Friends, straighten up and raise up your heads. The coming of the Lord will bring the full and final salvation of His people. The wicked will face eternal condemnation because the words of Jesus are indestructible. So dear believer, that day, that coming day, that final day is nearer now than when you first believed. And in the words of Christ, He says to us, straighten up and raise your heads for your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray.